The following is a message by Dr. R. Scott Clark of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. I want to meditate with you this morning uh, on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and just the first five verses. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5. God's Word says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and went through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from the spiritual rock following them, and that rock was Christ. But God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he write this word on our hearts and give us a true true faith. Um, There are three things not surprisingly, that that we ought to see in this uh, passage. But in the third thing, there are three things in there, so you could say there are six things. But for the sake of order and decency, we'll say there are three. Uh, uh, The first thing that we ought to see here is is the way the Apostle Paul speaks to the Corinthians. And, of course, you know he's he's not happy with the Corinthians. He wants to remonstrate with them uh, about their behavior, about their morality, about their ethics, and about their failure to live in a way that's worthy of the grace they had received in Jesus Christ. And that's a persistent problem through uh, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, particularly 1st Corinthians. It was a problem uh, that persisted in the Corinthian congregation till the end of the first century, because under under, uh, Domitian, about 97 or so A.D., uh, 1st Clement, wrote to the, to the a long, long, tedious epistle to the Corinthians, uh, the, the decidedly non-canonical epistle, uh, orthodox, but, but tedious, remonstrating with them for exactly the same sorts of moral failings that we find here in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, which stands as a, a reminder, a rebuke to those who would uh, just want to get back to the apostolic church. I don't think there are many of us that would take a call to a church if we knew that 50 years later you'd be facing the exact same moral failings uh, that, that you're facing now at the beginning of your ministry. But so it was in that congregation. So how does the Apostle Paul address these moral failings? Um, well, he addresses them by reminding them of their fundamental spiritual unity uh, with the people of God in all times and in all places. His first move in this passage is to, say to the, is to say to them, we and you people, you Corinthians, you congregate, you Corinthians, you Christians in Corinth, uh, you are not fundamentally different from national Israel. You're not fundamentally different from national Israel. And it's important to note the language that he uses. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. In other words, I want you to know. It's the negative way of saying I, I don't want you to know. It's actually a, it's a fairly standard way of speaking in epistolary discourse in the first century. It's a polite way of making a point. Uh, Don't be stupid. Wake up. Pay attention. 
think about the history of redemption. But he uses a couple of nouns here that are important that we ought not miss in verse 1. He calls them brothers. doesn't say you, you people, as I, as I sometimes want to do. He doesn't, he doesn't distance himself from them by saying you belong to another class. I'm not really related to you. Um, he's not wearing a t-shirt that says I'm with stupid. Uh, he's not saying I'm not one of you people. He's saying... Uh, that, that these people are his brothers and they are together brothers in, uh, in Christ, or they are at least to be regarded as such. Because they all share a membership in the visible church. But he also makes reference to another class of family members. He says that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's family language. That's familial language. The Jews, our fathers, national Israel, uh, they are family to us. They're not strangers to us. They're not, uh, they're not those people. Lots of fundamentalists and evangelicals and other folks, I suppose, have, have sometimes thought, and, and even uh, in the medieval church, it was common to sort of put uh, Israel uh, in a separate category uh, to say that was, in effect, that was then and this is now. Uh, the way the medieval church did it was to say that, uh, well, they had symbols of grace. Uh, and, of course, uh, they didn't have enough actual grace given to them to, to enable them uh, to keep the terms of the covenant. But we, in the new law, as opposed to the old law, we have been given uh, the, the substance of what was symbolized, we have this gr- uh, additional grace, power from God that enables us to keep the new law and thereby to remain uh, in the covenant. That should sound familiar to you. That's essentially the program being promulgated uh, by the new perspective on Paul. You get in by grace, you stay in through faith and works. There's nothing new about that at all. It was something the rabbis, at least some of the rabbis were saying, and it's certainly something that the medieval church was saying. And then, of course, we have our dispensational brothers and sisters who, uh, and other folks, uh, evangelicals, who want us to think of uh, that national Israel was then, that was then, and this is now. Well, there may be ways in which that's true, that that was then, this is now. There, certainly that was the old covenant. That was the typological period. This is the new covenant. Uh, the old covenant was inferior, it was fading, and, and, uh, and uh, all of those things. That's certainly true. But notice how the Apostle Paul speaks here. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all went through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses. Now, what kind of a sacrament is baptism? It's a new covenant sacrament. But he says they were baptized into Moses. And by the way, I'll have you note that he says they were all baptized into Moses. There was infant baptism in national Israel. They went through the Red Sea on dry ground, all got sprinkled. The only ones who got immersed, as I remind you repeatedly, were the Egyptians. (laughs) You want to be immersed and identify yourself with the Egyptians? That's great. Who went through and stayed dry in the flood? It was Noah and his family who got immersed, everybody but Noah. Bear that in mind. (laughs) They were all baptized. And they were baptized into Moses. What does it mean? They were all initiated 
into the visible covenant community in a mass baptism walking through on dry ground. They were all identified with death. They were all dead men and women and infants. Their backs were against the wall, and they cried out against Yahweh, who had put them in this untenable situation. Moses raised his arm, and Yahweh parted the waters, and they went through, and they were delivered from death through death. And that baptism was an identification with death. And Moses, being their temporal federal head, is the one with whom or to whom they are identified in that ritual sacramental death, that initiation into the visible covenant community, that sacramental representation, sign and seal of identification with the death of the mediator of the covenant. All of this is Paul's way of saying they were Christians just as you are Christians. They were Christians just as you were Christians, and they were initiated. There is one family, one Baptism, this should sound a little familiar. The Apostle Paul uses language like this somewhere else. One family, one people of God in all times and in all places. Different administrations to be sure, but a fundamental unity between all people in all times who are identified with that community. There are signs of initiation and signs of of renewal, a once-for-all sign of initiation. You can only be circumcised once. You can only be baptized once. You can only be identified with the death of the covenant mediator once. And so it was for them, and by implication, Paul's very clear implication, so is for us. They were all baptized in the cloud. They were all baptized into Moses. They all went through the sea. This is exactly why in Colossians 2, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul moves fluidly from circumcision to baptism. Not that he's thinking uh, or even intending to say explicitly there that baptism replaces circumcision, though it does. His point there isn't to go from one to the other. His point, the point is that when Paul thinks of circumcision, he thinks of an initiation into death. And when he thinks of an initiation into death, he thinks of identification with the death of Christ. And the typological identification with the death of Christ is circumcision. The reality sign and seal, if you will, of identification with the death of Christ is baptism. And that's the conceptual link in the apostle's mind that manifests itself here in 1 Corinthians 10. And he goes on to say in verse 3, And they all drank, or they all ate the same Uh, Notice that now he's at pains here to make this point. The same spiritual food. What same spiritual food? Well, to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to Corinthians. What point is he making? He's making the point that there is one, fundamentally one covenant people of God identified with the covenant mediator, baptized into a covenant community, sacramentally united. Not saying that baptism made any of them ipso facto ex opera operato Christians, but outwardly identified with Christ, and and they all ate the same, the same spiritual food. What same spiritual food? The same spiritual food that the Corinthians ate. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they all uh, drank the same spiritual drink. They 
were drinking, right, or they drank from the rock following them. So we have one family, one church, two mediators, a typological mediator and the real mediator for whom the the type worked. Moses, Hebrews says, worked for Jesus. Moses is a worker in the house. Jesus owns the house. One family, one baptism, one communion. There's one sign of initiation, baptism, one sign of of uh, ongoing presence and renewal, one sacrament of, of ongoing renewal, strengthening, and identification with the death of Christ. Paul is setting up here a contrast implicitly between uh, two kinds of, of cults, and he makes that clear in verse 7. They, uh, the people sat down to eat, and they got up to play. That was a corruption of the table, and that's where, of course, you know the Apostle Paul is going to go. He's foreshadowing where he's going to go in chapter 11. You people are Israelites. You people have sat down to eat, and you have gotten up to play. There's fundamentally one people in the word of God, redeemed by the one grace in the one Savior, Jesus Christ. But this isn't just typology, and I don't want you to miss this in verse 4. Look at the last clause in verse 4, where he says one, one of the things that I think is one of the most astounding things that maybe he says in all of his epistles. And that rock was Christ. Now I want you to think about, it for, think about for a minute what he didn't say. He didn't say that rock became Christ. There's no transubstantiation. He didn't say that rock became Christ to them when they had an existential encounter with it. He's not a Bardian. He didn't say that rock became Christ to them when they decided it was going to be, when they, when they would identify with it and make it their rock. He's not a, a Schleiermachian. He's not a radical subjectivist. It isn't their rock when they thought it was their rock. It was objectively the rock, and that, and that rock was Christ. He doesn't say that Christ was with the rock. He's not under the rock. He's not in the rock. He doesn't even say that that rock symbolizes Christ. Zwingli doesn't help us here. Only Calvin helps us to understand this language. He says that rock was Christ. Does it mean, right, any of those other things that we surveyed already, quickly, very quickly? No. He means that rock was Christ sacramentally. It was, to put a fine point on it, a means of grace, just like the means of grace to which we have access today. It was the divinely ordained instrument through which God the Holy Spirit sovereignly operated to accomplish his purposes and his will in his people. In other words, they had access to the same grace, the same Savior, the same sacraments, the same power that we do. And he says, look what happened to them. Look what happened to that covenant community. 
Don't think that you are any different than the Israelites. That's the point. That's the clear point. And in case anybody misses it, he makes it explicit in verse 5. And and, and here he he makes absolutely clear the third point. We have one family, one uh, set, if you will, of means of grace, and one God. We have one Savior, Christ, who followed them through the desert. How did he follow them through the desert? It was a rock. Calvin and the Reformed tradition explains that, that it was the operation, the the sovereign, powerful, mysterious operation of God the Son before he was incarnate. It's been described in the history of theology as the Calvinistic extra. God God the Son operated beyond the humanity before he was incarnate, manifested himself in a variety of ways. It was the same Savior whom we know incarnate, Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, that rock was Christ, so that no one misses it. It was God the Son. It wasn't just that the rock typified Christ, but that it, but, but that it was the same Son whom we know incarnate, who was in the womb of the Virgin, who was in the temple as a boy, and who was crucified for us as a grown man. That Son, God the Son, was operating in the history of redemption. He was an actor and, and, and actively involved in, in their spiritual lives as he is in ours. There's one spirit. That's what the reference to the cloud is about. It's at least an implicit reference to the Holy Spirit. And then he makes, as I say in verse 5, very clear, God was not pleased uh, with most of them. They were, for they were struck down in the desert, usually when Paul, especially in, in, in this sort of a context, uses theos, it's a reference to the Father. The same triune God, in other words, whom we invoke in our new covenant services, is the same triune God who operated in the life of national Israel. One people. One sacramental system. A sign and seal of initiation and a sign and seal of covenant renewal. And one triune God. There's a fundamental unity. A fundamental unity of of purpose. A fundamental unity of salvation. A fundamental unity of ethics flowing out of the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. The grace they had typologically and the grace we have in the reality in the new covenant. And one ethic that flows out of that, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Having been redeemed from sin, from the bondage of sin, having been initiated into a covenant community, having been given a sacrament of renewal and strength, being fed, renewed, by the body and blood of Christ in the Holy Sacrament, operated by the Holy Spirit, being united by that Spirit to the one Savior. How ought we to live? Well, it's plain. It's plain here in 1 Corinthians. that We ought to live in a way that's worthy of those who've been redeemed, delivered out of Egypt, whose backs were against the wall, who had no hope, but whom God sovereignly by his grace delivered in the most unexpected way, in the incarnation of that son 
who operated through that rock and followed his people through the desert and fed them mysteriously, wonderfully. Neither Exodus 17 nor Numbers 20 tell us anything about a moving rock. The rabbis filled in that picture. Paul says that rock followed them. Why? Because Christ followed them. God the Son followed them. God the Holy Spirit overshadowed them, and God the Father provided for them. That's how you ought to think of yourself today, as a delivered person, baptized into the name of the mediator, overshadowed and protected by the Holy Spirit, identified with Christ, and delivered from Egypt. Let's give thanks. Father, we give you thanks this morning for your grace to us in Christ Jesus, that you've made us a part of this one glorious people, and you've done so in the most unexpected way. But you've done so uh, nevertheless, despite our expectations. And so we bless you and praise you for the grace that we know in Jesus, in that while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, you brought us out of Egypt, identified us with Christ, and brought to pass by your Spirit all of the promises that were implicit uh, in that baptism. Hear our prayer, accept our thanks, and grant us grace this day to live as those who have been delivered out of Egypt, identified with Christ, and fed with his body and blood by the operation of the Spirit. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.